Well, we are beginning our study of 2 Thessalonians today, and uh, we sort of introduced it a bit last week. Let's just review a couple of things that I I think are important um, as we get oriented to this little book. This is um, obviously the second letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church. Thessalonica, that's the name of the city, is up in the northern part of the the Greek peninsula. It's it's an area at this time uh, of writing in the 50s, very early 60s, uh, that is on a major east-west road system. It's a small little church, and this is the important point. It is a church that is being severely persecuted. Now, who's persecuting them? As far as we can determine from just what the Apostle Paul says in both letters, there is the Roman officials. In other words, they are, and this is going to grow as the church uh, continues to grow throughout the Mediterranean world. Uh, they are beginning to, the Roman government in, in these localities is officially, as an act of public policy, uh, persecuting Christians because they uh, are not um, falling in line with the practices of what the empire expected. Now, that doesn't mean that the empire is forcing them to give up their faith. What it's saying is just one thing you must do. You can believe and practice anything that you that you want, but you must bow down to Caesar. So you had people of all different kinds of strange, weird beliefs, as well as <clears throat> excuse me, those who were in the Jewish faith, as well as other Eastern faiths that were much part of they would be able to go and practice things. So you might say, quote, they had religious liberty, close quote, as long as they bowed the knee to Caesar. Christians would not do that. There's a little phrase that Christians use, Jesus is Lord. As far as we know, that's the first confession of faith ever put together by the church. Jesus is the Lord, not Caesar, because the, the, the language that the Roman Empire was using was Caesar is Lord. And so to not bow down to Caesar was a capital offense. In addition, uh, can I just go down a bunny trail just a little bit further? There were two other practices that the church, uh, as it grew, was becoming more and more uh, obvious and more and more a part of their identity. Uh, Those who were persecuting the church charged the church with cannibalism. Why would they charge the church with cannibalism? Because of communion, because of the Eucharist. They're eating the body of somebody and drinking the blood of somebody. Now, obviously, they're not. That's a figurative remembrance, but that was very much a part of what the empire was saying. And then the, the other charge, which is really, it's humorous, but it's very serious because they were persecuted for it. They were charged with incest. Why were they charged with incest? Because they call each other brothers and sisters, and they hug each other. Uh, Paul, in two of his letters, uh, talks about the holy kiss. So it would be like Woody and I embracing, or there are only women in this group, and calling each other brothers in Christ and so on. And it was, I mean, uh, it's distorted, it's perverted, it's, it's ridiculous. But these were serious issues in the empire. 
And so as the church grew and spread, both in terms of numbers as well as as geographical, um, increasingly the church is something that the empire is noticing. And so they persecute. Now that is a very important uh, point to remember about the Thessalonian church. I can't give you numbers. We don't have that kind of information. But it was severe, it was relentless, and it was costly. That's important as we start the the letter of 2 Thessalonians because Paul gives them encouragement in the midst of that. Yeah, please. Sorry, I don't know how this works. Can you ask questions? No, you're not. No, you're allowed to ask questions, of course. This this guy to my right, I don't know why, he always sits in the... The place of adoration, fame, near <laughs> worship, but uh, he is always asking questions. No, Eric, please ask questions. So I'm curious because I've known this for a long time, but I've never asked this question about it. Did the government, the empire, did they actually know the truth, or were they going off of rumors and they, there was true suspicion, or do you think that they just used that as a ploy, saying, "No, we we've heard that you've done this." even if it's been explained to them, and they, they know the truth. Uh, yeah. It as an yeah. I, I think there's probably all of those reasons go together. It depends on who it is, because the persecutions begin locally. There's not empire-wide persecutions where the seizure will issue an empire-wide edict until the 200s. So it's another 130, 140 years till that happens. But the local Roman governors, the local provincial authorities are the ones who are doing the persecuting. And quite honestly, again, I don't, I don't know the answer to every one of those situations throughout the vast Mediterranean Empire. But I think a lot, of the, a lot of times the local provincial leaders didn't care what you did. Just don't make waves. Don't create issues for the empire. The reasons that, that Judea was so volatile is because they they were always causing problems for Rome. I mean, it didn't matter what was going on. The Jewish people in Judea were always, because of all the requirements for the Jewish practices and Jewish faith, sacrifices, the importance of Temple Mount, circumcision, all of those things went against the empire, and they insisted on it. And some of the Roman provincial governors honored it, and some of the Roman provincial governors said, there's no way we're going to do this. We're not going to protect those kinds of practices. So it, it seems to me that in most cases, these Roman provincial governors weren't terribly interested in searching out the truth. They didn't call loads of witnesses to find out what really is going on. It's just this is creating some, some havoc, this is creating some chaos, and they start throwing the leaders into jail. They start seizing their property, and they, in some cases, start crucifying them. If you were a Roman citizen, you were decapitated. If you were a non-Roman citizen, you were crucified. It's a long answer to your question. But, I mean, it's, it's just not one simple answer to something like this. But in Thessalonica, because it's on a major east-west road system, the Roman governor really wanted peace there. And the church, they saw, you perceived as an enemy. So, again, that is all important to understand the first couple of verses of Second Thessalonians. So, are you ready to start? You sort of got, I'm trying to set the context that'll help you to see really why Paul is saying what he's saying. So we have the typical introduction, Paul, Silvanus, Silvanus is the Hebrew name for Silas, 
and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I, every time we've studied a letter of Paul, I always comment on this, but some of you are new, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it again. The rest of you, this is review, and everyone of you know that's been here for a while, and it's exactly what I'm going to say. As a matter of fact, you can stand up here and do it, right, Fred? Right, Woody? You're, yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> well, I would recommend that home instead throw that away, because nothing is coming out of that. Paul does something that no other writer coming out of the first century did. Now let me explain what I mean. We have, uh, I mean, this uh, book that we're studying here is a letter. And we have thousands of letters coming out of the ancient world in the first century. If the letter is written by a Greek person, their greeting would be charis to you. Charis is the Greek word for grace. That's how Greco-Roman people greeted one another. So I see Joe along the street in the town, and it's a Greek town. I said, Chris, Joe. Grace, Joe. The shalom is a Hebrew greeting, and it still is today among Jewish people. Shalom. It's peace. I have a lot of friends that I just got an email from one last week, and he starts, Shalom, Jim. That still is the typical greeting of a, of, of a Jewish person, whether they're in this country or in Israel or whatever. What Paul is doing is he combines these two into a single greeting. Why did he do that? He's addressing both. Both interpret that. Both would be the Jews? Exactly. He's addressed about the Greek Roman people of the empire as well as the Jews. Does he mean everybody in other words or just, just them sure. people there? Sure. Yeah. Now remember, I mean he's addressing believers in the Thessalonian church, uh, but the Thessalonian church involved both Greek, Greco-Roman people as well as Jews. So this is an all-inclusive greeting. I just want you to see this. Every word Paul writes is significant. The other thing I think that's important about his greetings, he just does this consistently. Grace is always how God deals with us. He always deals with us in grace. And the result of his grace that he offers us in salvation is peace with God. You see what I'm saying? And the answer to that is either yes or no. Yes. You see what I'm doing? Yes. I'm trying to explain why is he doing this. It's an, honestly, it is a very unusual greeting in a letter coming out of the first century. But Paul is representing Christ, but he's representing the gospel, and he's representing the transformational work that the gospel brings. So grace and peace to you. And he sources that in the Father and the Son which again says something about his theology. It says something about the nature of God as Trinity. So in just a greeting, you could spend, well, we spent, what, about five, six minutes on it? 
It's not just happenstance, it's just going to be nice. He's sending a message to them. And it's an important message. That the church is inclusive, no one's left out, and it also involves a doctrinal kind of message that God deals with us in grace, and we are to deal with one another in grace. And the grace of salvation produces peace with him and peace with others. Okay? Now, some of you, this is the fourth time you've heard this. So uh, I hope you're getting it. Next time we start a letter of Paul, Fred, you'll, you'll teach that verse, okay? Be ready. And if you don't remember, Woody will help you. <clears throat> I'll remember half of it. <laughs> All right, let's have Fred commit to the first half and you commit to the second All right. Half. And then when we're done with that, we'll have father and son do it. John and Andrew. By the way, Andrew just told me as you were coming up the elevator, his wife uh, is pregnant. They're expecting their first child. (laughs) Now that also means that John will be a grand. They don't. You don't know if it's a boy or a girl. So a grand parent. Grand something. Grandparent. (laughs) Grandparent. Thank you. I was looking for the word. So congratulations. Uh, That's really. When I got to the elevator, I was congratulated and, and. they said why. So. Oh. <laughs> oh, now you know. Okay. Know. Okay, good. Well, anyway, thank you for allowing us to share that. Now, look with me now at verse three and verses 3 and 4. I want to read it, but I want to come back and talk a lot about it. Now, remember what I said about the historical context. We ought always to give thanks to you, excuse me, thanks to God for you, brothers, brothers and sisters, as it is right Because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. All right, if we start at the bottom... In other words, start at the end of verse 4. It gives you the primary reason Paul is saying what he's saying. Here is a church that is enduring significant persecutions and significant afflictions. Reasons, what we were talking about just a couple of minutes ago. This isn't insignificant. This is very significant. Now, that's the context. What's he saying about this little church? He says, because you are enduring. By the way, what does enduring mean? What does that mean, they're enduring in in the face of persecutions and afflictions? What does that mean, they're enduring? They're hanging in there. They're they're being subjected to They're hanging in there. Okay, they're staying strong. they're not giving up. Uh, there's a stick to That's one of my favorite ways of putting it. Of putting it. I mean, that is, it's a tremendous affirmation. Now, continuing, we're working from the bottom of the paragraph up to the beginning. He says, we are boasting about you in the churches. Now, I'm reading from the ESV, and, but I like how they've translated that. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches. What does that mean? 
What are they boasting about? Their great accomplishments? I mean, Paul and Timothy? No, that's not what they're boasting. What are they boasting about? <clears throat> Their love for Christ. Well, they're talking about the ch- at this church at Thessalonica how they're hanging enduring. in there, how they're enduring. Because listen, the, the 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 because of what we talked about earlier, the persecution of the church is going to grow. And so, let's just pick out a city down in Corinth. You know, Paul. That's where he is when he's writing this letter, and he's saying, "I'm telling." Say, Woody's the head of the Corinthian church. Woody, I just got a report on what is happening up there in Thessalonica. I mean, it's unbelievable. They're, they've crucified three Christians yesterday for their faith. They wouldn't bow down to the statue of Caesar Nero there in the town square. Boy, I'll tell you, that, that is a model church, isn't it, Woody? It doesn't matter what happens to them. They hang in there. They don't give up. I mean, that's, that's what he's saying. They're holding up the Thessalonican church as a model church that endures, hangs in there, perseveres in the midst of tremendous persecution. You and I today, in the United States of America, we, we don't have any idea what that means. I mean, we are increasingly finding ourselves more and more going against the culture in a lot of areas that the culture is choosing to do, whether it's sexuality issues or whatever it is that we, you, we could cite. But we're not really being persecuted. The state isn't persecuting us. The state isn't throwing us in prison. The state isn't executing us. But where is that occurring on planet Earth in 2015? With ISIS. You know, with ISIS, a number, of, uh, a number of the areas that they control. Some very famous and horrific executions have occurred. But in Iran, Iran has executed and thrown in prison many Christians over the last couple of years. And I mean, you could cite North Korea. I don't know if you saw, there was a guy just arrested um, a couple of weeks ago as a pastor. He's been in prison for, in and out of prison for a long time in North Korea. China, there's more freedom than there used to be in China. But depending on how much you do and how much of a wave you make, the government will arrest you. They have executed pastors. So it's those kinds that you're going to hold up individuals as models. This, it's worthwhile to endure. Hang in there. Are we getting a pass here in America? <clears throat> Are we getting what, Fred? Are we getting a pass as Christians oh, it's pa- uh, <laughs> yeah. in, in America? Yeah. Is, that, um, is there a battle underway right here yeah. in Omaha? Yeah. What do you say? I mean, how- My, I'm not a prophet. So, and, and please don't say anything. I take anything I say about the future with other than a grain of salt. However, I think the trends are, uh, a, a man I, I used to study under uh, had said he believes that the days of easy Christianity in America are over. That it's going to increasingly cost to stand for things that are important to the Lord. So, you know, I used to never think that um, that kind of thing would happen in my lifetime, but I think that might. I do think, uh, I don't know about state-sponsored persecution, but I do think, uh, this is a personal conviction of mine, and I won't go any further with it, but I do think with some of the decisions that the Supreme Court has made and some of the decisions that the president the executive branch of the government is making at the national level, religious liberty is is an issue that's being threatened. I can envision 
um, situations and scenarios where uh, institutions like the one I used to lead as president would be forced to close its doors if it did not do certain things that the United States government is requiring it to do. Um, so those kinds of things. That doesn't mean you go to jail, but it does mean things are going to become so difficult that if you don't do what the government is asking you to do, which violates everything you stand for, then you only have one other option, close the doors. There's nothing else you can do. So we'll see. But I, I do think it is going to cost us more and more to stand for the Lord in certain areas of this country, in certain areas, certain things. We'll see. Yes, Eric. I just want to say one more thing about Paul. You brought up a good point. I've been watching that very closely, obviously, with the stuff that happened in Indiana and multiple states. My business, I only cater to Christians, so I only will work with Christians. And so being new as a business owner, that's a heavy concern on my mind. But I, I just, God's given me a lot of peace about it. And I wouldn't be moving forward if it wasn't for him sure. telling me to. So I'm not too worried about it because I know it's his business, not mine anyway. So there's that piece of it. But it, what Paul does here, from a behaviorist standpoint, that's what I would consider myself uh, just with my past, psychologically what he did was incredibly powerful because not only is he holding them up as a model for these other churches, he is now just told that church that we know what you're going through and I'm telling other people how you're handling it and so now they're not going to feel as alone so psychologically they now feel like they're sharing their entire burden with the entire church whoever yep. Paul is talking to yep. and so as a reassurance piece obviously I, I can't know why he put that in there specifically but I think that that's one piece of reason he probably did so that they understood you're not alone absolutely absolutely and again, holding them up as a model, and we'll see that again uh, in the next paragraph. Now let's keep working our way from the end of verse 4 up to verse 3. So he then says, now remember, this is in the midst of persecutions and afflictions. What does he see happening to their faith and to their love? It's amazing. It's amazing. You would think in situations like that that both the faith and trust you have in God and the love you have for him and for others would be diminishing. But he uses, and these are, the, the Greek words that he's using here are really, really interesting words. But he says your faith is growing abundantly. It's a superlative kind of word. I mean, it's like, it's growing beyond bounds that are even measurable and imaginable for us. So he's really saying something to this little group of people in these house churches in Thessalonica. You're not losing your faith. Your faith is growing abundantly. And then your love for every one of you for one another is increasing. And that's a, um, that's a merchant's term. It's like exponentially growing. So again, you know, instead of, ooh, we're in a period of persecution, I'm not sure I trust him anymore. He's, maybe he's, this friend of mine that I knew in the church, maybe he's turning against me and turning me into, no, 
my love for him and my love and commitment to the other brothers and sisters of Christ is growing so exponentially. I'm telling you, what Paul is saying to this little church is nothing short of astonishing. It's almost counterintuitive. What I mean by that is you, you, you expect just intuitively that when really tough times occur, you pull back. Okay, let's, let's pull back. We're going too fast. I'm not going to trust the Lord for any major things anymore. I'm just I'm going to pull back. I'm just going to isolate myself. And let's kind of hide some of the expressions of brotherly and sisterly love in the church. Uh, we, this is getting us into trouble. And that's not what they're doing. They're doing exactly the opposite. So, you know, again, just to kind of, that's why I spent some time at the beginning trying to paint the context of this. And when you understand the context, this is a remarkable little church. And it's to then, for you and me, who are not in persecution, for the most part, when I don't think, certainly not to the degree these people were, what a greater challenge for us that our faith is going to grow and our love for the Lord and love for other people is going to grow. Because the challenge is if it grows in the situation that they were in, and that's the mark of my life, faith and love are the two primary virtues of the Christian walk. They should be growing exponentially in my life. All right? So that's the takeaway from this morning. The takeaway from this morning is that my faith and my love for one another will grow. My Bible has greater. It has become greater. That's, yeah, increase. Another, it's the same. It's a superlative word. Yep, exactly. Fred? For application in our lives, <clears throat> to have our, our love, love and faith grow, how... And that does happen, correct? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is what we're talking about mm-hmm. here. This mm-hmm. is for us. How does that grow in us? How can faith, your faith, within, within ourselves. Um, I'll answer it from our responsibility, then I'll answer it from God's perspective, okay? From our uh, vantage point, I think the Bible encourages us to um, trust God for every aspect of life, Uh, whether it's, uh, you think of just the, the prayer that the Lord Jesus taught his disciples, you know, pray for our daily bread, trust him for the normal, ordinary things of life, as well as really big kingdom things. The kingdom of God would come, that kind of thing. But Fred, I think um, trusting the Lord, having faith in the Lord, quite frankly, deepens and grows when we're in difficult times. And so from God's perspective, then, God is saying how... This isn't how it happened, but just pretend. The Trinity sitting up there around the table, and the Father and Son and Spirit are saying, how are we going to grow the faith of Jim Ekman? Because we want him to deepen his faith and trust in us. So how, how, how should we go about doing that? Now again, this isn't how it happened, but just pretending. 
And they say, you know, we're going to let some things occur in his life where he's going to be forced to either trust us more or give up. And what might those circumstances be? The difficulties and challenges of life. Because the Lord knows our condition. He knows us really well. And when things are really, really, really going well, quite honestly, be very blunt, be very brutally honest with yourself. Do you really need God when things are really, really, really going well? As a matter of fact, the tendency can be you sort of forget about him. Man, I've really accomplished a lot in the last week, and I don't remember praying to the Lord at all during that week, and boy, it's been a really good week. Now, I don't know. We probably don't even quite think of it that way, but whereas you have a week where you know, day number one, your car blows up. I'm making all this up. But day number two, you're dismissed from your job. Day number three, you have an appendectomy, you end up in the hospital. I mean, just all, all of a sudden, I mean, your life is sort of coming apart at the seams. Is that not why James says in <coughs> chapter 1, verse 2, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials? And you've heard me say this before, that is, that is growing in faith 101. And you and I go back to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to drop this course and I want to enroll in this course because I don't like this course. And the Lord says to us, there's no other curriculum. Uh, you didn't register for Growing Faith 101. I registered you for that course and you can't drop it. Now, I'm using academic examples because that was my life for so long. Now, I'm not trying to minimize this, but what is happening in the Thessalonian churches is, is what God, and that's why I think Paul says it this way, is what God wants to see. That in adversity, our faith and our love for one another grows. Daryl. Yeah. Um, at the time that Christ was crucified, they were a right. bunch of cowards. Hmm. They left the scene. Absolutely. God told them, Christ told them that they would go ahead and wait in the Holy Spirit would come upon them. <clears throat> and when the Holy Spirit came upon them, mm. they turned from cowards into powerful. That's right. But it wasn't really them, it was the Holy Spirit That's right. through them. So. Do we recognize their bravery and their doing what they ought to do? Or is this just simply the Holy Spirit's evidence um, being worked out through their lives or both? I think it's both and, Daryl. It, it, it must be both and, or otherwise the commands of Scripture don't make any sense. You know what I mean? We are commanded, you know, not just encouraged, we're commanded. They're the imperatives of the Scriptures. Uh, to to follow the Lord, to trust the Lord, to um, rely on the Lord, and so on. So it's that, and this is, it's impossible to put this in human language where it works. It is the Spirit of God plus our will working together. Because our will can also resist God, even as we come to faith in Christ. 
So I think it's a both and. But, I mean, ultimately, and, and your point is very well taken, ultimately it is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that and gives us that enablement and that strength to endure, but it is also our will and our desire to do that because we love the Lord and so on. But the, the mixture of those two explain it. And it's uh, the commands that you see in the New Testament, like in Ephesians 5.18, for example, be filled with the Holy Spirit, meaning be under his control. That's a command. It's an intentionality on your part. So, And it's, you know, walk with the Lord. Walk with Jesus Christ. Walk in by with the Holy Spirit. They're all commands. What does that mean? To me, they're all uh, figures of speech, metaphors, that define our dependence on God. And our dependence on God is a conscious, ongoing act of faith. But you're right, it's a choice. We can either choose to be dependent or choose not to be dependent. And and not to simplify it, but in many ways it is really that simple. But you're saying that if you choose not to, you start to dilute your faith. If you choose to, you you automatically start to concentrate your faith. It's very easy for us to dilute our faith because we have so much Mm -hmm. available to Mm -hmm. us as secondary choices to get by. Well, and in yeah, and in in just the the kind of civilization and culture that we are all privileged to 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 live in, with the technology, the affluence. I mean, you know, no matter how you look at it, no matter where you are on the socioeconomic scale of America, you are affluent compared to about eighty percent of the rest of the world. Whereas, I mean, I know I know a number of friends in the Middle East, and some who live in extreme poverty, and I'm telling you, as believers, that. Their life is a life of absolute dependence on the Lord because they have nothing else to hold on to. And, and I mean, you're right. I like that word dilute. Our faith can be so easily diluted and shallow, made shallow because just the normal, common, ordinary aspects of our day, we can get by without saying much to the Lord at all. You know, we have air conditioning in our home. We have nice cars, you know, relatively speaking. We have nice homes, relatively speaking. And whereas in other parts of the world, there are people they have no transportation. They live in a little shack or lean to. You know what I mean? And they're not sure where their food for their children is going to come. And yet they're believers. So it's you know the, the, their approach to life as Christians is so different than our approach to life. But that doesn't mean. The obligation responsibility of you and I is any different than there. It's to live a life of dependence on Christ. And so your word is a good word. Our faith can be so easily diluted by just the, the, the life that we, we the culture we live in. Now the next paragraph adds more to this because now listen, it is it is common sense. And it is only reasonable that they would ask the question, is God ever going to make this right? Which paragraph? I'm about to start verse 5. Okay. Is God ever going to make this right? 
Is God ever going to deal justly with those who are persecuting us? Is God ever going to do, deal righteously and justly with the enemies of the gospel? And so verse 5, and it really goes on, we'll never get through all this today, but it really goes on through the end of this paragraph, verse 12, so it's really the rest of chapter 1. Now listen very carefully. Paul brings teaching about the end times into answering a very practical question. Will God ever make this right? And the answer is, he may choose to make it right in the short run, but he's absolutely going to make it right at the end. Now, why teach this to people? Okay, obviously you didn't hear that question, so I'll repeat it. As a source of encouragement. As a source of encouragement. It feeds the endurance and the steadfastness and the perseverance because you know by faith you may not see it. You understand what I mean? We may not see the enemies of God in our age dealt with justly and righteously. But by faith we know at the end they will be. So it is an encouragement. And this is, this is a very, very important issue. Do you believe God is just and righteous? Yes. That means he must deal with his enemies. Will he? Yes. When is he going to do that? It could be in the short run, but sometimes it isn't. There are very, very wicked people that have done dastardly, horrific things and live a long life and just die a natural death. When my view is God should throw a thunderbolt from heaven and absolutely exterminate them immediately. But you, I can't figure out, sometimes God does that? You know, I, um, you know, I don't know how much you follow things like this, but you know, we're in the 100th anniversary of World War I, which was up to that point, the most horrific war in human history. It was absolutely horrible. I call it the Great War. The war to end all, and there, we don't ever want a war like this again. And, and in 20 years, there's another war, which was even worse. But the reason I'm saying that, because that, there were people that, that helped to produce that war. That, there were just a bunch of, I read a book this summer called The Sleepwalkers, where the leaders of Germany and Austria-Hungary and Russia and England and France, they just... We're just sleepwalking and drew the entire world into a catastrophe. Some of the things that they did, you think, will God deal with them? He did. And then 20 years later, another guy comes along to Adolf Hitler. Thousand-year Reich. Now he rules for 12 years. Does God take care of that? Yes, God makes, God in history deals justly with the Nazis. God doesn't always do. Pardon me? Didn't Christ kind of warn them of that and say, you're no longer of this world? Well, yes. Uh, <clears throat> this is why we don't like summer, because we have to take our jacket off. With me. Um, well, yes, I mean, but remember the other half of that. We're in the world, mm-hmm. but not of the world. I mean, we're in the world. The Lord doesn't call us home the moment we put our faith in him, which I wish he would have not prayed that. I wish he'd have prayed the moment. Lord, they trust me. Father, take them home to glory. 
But if every person that trusts in Christ is immediately taken to heaven, who will be left to represent him? So he leaves us here to represent him. So, but I think he does, he makes it very, very clear that this does not necessarily mean it's going to be easy to be in the world but not of the world. So what he does in this paragraph, he, now I'm going to read the entire paragraph because we only have 15 minutes. We'll never get all of this done. But I want to read the entire section, about half of the section. I'm not going to read all of it because it'll take too long. But I want you to see what Paul, now listen to me. Look at me. I want to make sure you hear this. Paul teaches theology to bring encouragement. And to me, that's important. I do that in these classes because I think you need to know more about God, more about his character, and more about his plan to be encouraged and comforted because you serve and worship a God who knows what he's doing. Amen. Things don't, this is not a random universe. God is in control, and yeah. his plan is to eradicate once and for all evil. And it all is wrapped around his son. Okay, now let's look at how he says this, keeping in mind the kind of everything that we have been talking about. I'm reading from the ESV. It may be a little different than yours, but I think for the most part it's going to be very consistent. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Now, the pronoun this, the monster pronoun this, refers back to their enduring. So, I mean, make sure you, you don't miss that. The connection is, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Now, let's interpret that very clearly. That you are suffering is evidence that God has already dealt with you righteously. How has he done that? Through Jesus Christ. In other words, <clears throat> these people at Thessalonica, you have to now listen very carefully because the theology behind this is really profound. The people at Thessalonica have put their faith in Christ. This little church is growing. And because they put their faith in Christ, they have been declared righteous. Romans 6, 1 through 14. That's justification. You're declared righteous. And Paul is saying that you are enduring is evidence that God has already dealt with you righteously because you put your faith in Christ. Where did the righteous judgment occur in Woody's life, in my life, in John's life, and everybody else around the table? When we put our faith in Christ, he righteously dealt with us in judgment because he judged Jesus. And because he judged Jesus and I appropriated that to my life by faith, I will not face his judgment. As he will write later on, the eternal destruction, verse 9, that awaits those who rejected Christ, that will not await me. Because I have already been righteously judged by God through Christ. As Paul says, he judged Christ so that he doesn't judge you. 
how does that exchange occur when I put my faith in him? So it's, it's an astonishing statement to them so that you are worthy of the kingdom of God. And the evidence of all of this is that you are suffering. So you follow it? Do you understand what he's saying there? I mean, it's, it's really, it's quite powerful how he's saying this to them. And that's just a reminder to them. Here's your standing in Christ. Here's your identity, Christ. Here's who you are in Christ. And that's why you're worthy of the kingdom. Not because of anything you've done, but because of the righteous judgment of God that has already occurred in your life through Christ. That's why you're worthy for the kingdom. And that's the reason you're suffering, because of these truths. Now, I don't see too many deer-in-the-headlight looks, so I'm assuming that this is sort of a review, but that's the point he's making. Then, he says, indeed, God considers it just. Now he brings up, God is just. God is going to deal with those who are persecuting you. So what does he say? To repay with affliction those who afflict you. You're a Thessalonian. And your father has just been executed by the provincial governor. Paul has just explained to you, God's going to take care of that. That affliction with you've experienced, God's going to take care of that guy. You follow me? That's encouragement. Because yeah. that's harsh. It's hard to understand. Said, Wait a minute. My father was just executed because of his faith in Christ. Paul says, I know that. But remember, who he is in Christ, he's standing in Christ, he's worthy of the kingdom, he's a citizen of the kingdom, and God's just. God will take care of that. And then he adds, verse 7, and to grant you grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. Why did he add as well as to us? Why did he add that? Because they are us, are sharing in the affliction. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. Paul's being persecuted too. If you don't know, read Second Corinthians chapter 12, an itemization of all of Paul's incredible persecutions. So Paul is saying, and I don't want to diminish this, but in a way he's saying, it was certainly true for the first century Christian, the norm in first century Christianity is persecution. That's not the norm for you and me. Praise the Lord. I, I certainly am not saying, Lord, please see the persecution come to my house tomorrow. None of us would pray that. But all Paul is just reminding them, and again, I'm not, that, I'm not being glib about this, but just saying, you're not the only ones experiencing persecution. But God, God is going to deal with those who afflicted you, and he's going to grant relief to you. Okay, when is this going to occur? Notice, in your Bible, it should have when the Lord Jesus is revealed. Does it have that? Mm -hmm. So Paul's answering, okay, Paul has said, God's going to deal with those who afflicted you, and God is going to 
grant relief to you. When is that going to happen? Tomorrow? Could be. But with absolute certainty, when the Lord Jesus is revealed with heaven, from heaven with his mighty angels. When is that going to occur? All of the events surrounding the second coming of Christ. That nobody knows when it's going to happen. Nobody knows the date of that. That's right. So Paul, that's what I said a couple minutes ago. Paul is going to now use end time teaching to bring comfort to these believers at this point. Bank on it. This is what God is going to do. He's going to make everything right. And he's going to, as an, because God's a God of justice, he's going, to, he's going to deal with those who have afflicted you. And he's also going to bring relief to you. When is he going to do that? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. Now that, look at those, look at those words. Flaming fire is used throughout the scriptures as God purging, God cleansing. It may or may not be literal. But see the word vengeance. That's an unusual word. It's not an unusual word in the scriptures. It's an unusual word to use. But it echoes something that you see throughout the scriptures. You and I are not to be motivated by vengeance. Jesus says to the disciples, and well, to the larger crowd he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount to, he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Here is when that's going to be fulfilled. So we don't have the right to get revenge, but God does have the right to get revenge. What's the difference? Okay, you didn't hear that, so I'll repeat it. You and I do not have the right to deal with people in vengeance, but God does. What's the difference? It's out of his will. Okay, that's that's right, but I want you to be more specific. He'll take care of Continue. Now you're in the ballpark. You're on the warning path. Now I want you to come home. Keep Keep building on what you know about God. But when God deals with people in vengeance, he knows the end from the beginning. He knows the end from the beginning. It will always be. Okay, you and I, when we deal with people, if we deal with people in revenge, it's personal. It can be self-elevating. You know what I mean? I'm finally getting back at that person. With God. In vengeance, it's absolutely perfect. It's absolutely just. That's a difference. Because, I mean, there's nobody in this room. If you're telling me you've never felt that, you're not being honest. Every one of us in this room knows exactly what revenge means. We're men. We play sports. I mean, we've been in this kind of stuff. Somebody crosses you, you're... Your goal in life is to smash them up against a wall. <laughs> if you're playing, if you're playing basketball and somebody elbows you, the next play, he's going to get the elbow. If you're playing football, 
and somebody fouls you. Next play, what's your goal? I'm gonna foul. He's gonna be he's gonna be on the turf, absolutely smashed, laid out. Bam. That's not God's perspective on vengeance. Well, he's also backing up the teaching that Christ did when he said, "You've heard it said, eye for an eye," which yeah. is in Exodus, it's the law. You take an eye for an eye, you take a you know hand for hand, so on and so forth, and then. By backing that up, he's, he's just saying this is not our responsibility. Christ said it, this is not us. You know, turn the other cheek, we have to forgive. They're being persecuted. They have to be reassured. This is not your fight. Yeah. Well, and, yeah, and in all likelihood, even if you take up the sword and try to fight, humanly speaking, you're not going to win. So it's take the perspective. God will take care of these guys. Now again, I mean, the Bible in other parts, particularly in the Old Testament, it, tell, it will teach us it, sometimes it'll be in the short run. You may live to see it where God deals justly with this person or this movement or this empire, whatever it is. But you may not. You may die and you'll never see it. But that doesn't mean it's not going to be, God's not going to deal with it. What Paul is doing, and again, this is, this is so central to how the New Testament does New Testament so often teaches end-time theology to affect present-time behavior. And the, the only thing about end-time theology is most of us are not going to live to see that. I mean, live in the, the current body and all that. We'll come back with Jesus and we'll see it worked out then. But the point is, Paul is just saying, this may be hundreds of years, it may be thousands of years, but God's going to deal with us. And he wraps it around the return of Jesus. When the Lord Jesus is revealed. And notice this. I'm almost done, but let me, let me just continue in verse 8. Vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. I wish uh, he had written that a little bit different. Uh, okay, Buddy, people, why don't you explain it? Some, <laughs> He's dealing out retribution to those who do not know God. Um, th- what about the ones that haven't heard the gospel? Okay. I mean, Let's... I, I, would, I would hope that he would have said retribution to those who do not believe the gospel. Which he does. Do not obey the gospel, second part. Right, on the second part. Okay, I probably shouldn't have have done this. I should have waited to do this next week. Because Woody's raised a really important question. Now, um, You want to take it up next time? I will, but I, I don't want to leave this hanging. Now listen, this is really, really important. We have done this a number of years ago. It was one of the first things we studied when we started this class, Romans. So we got to go back to Romans to answer this. And it's answered in Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. I will do, start with that next week. But listen to me. Paul makes it clear in that passage. No one is ever going to stand before God and say, I never knew you. I never knew about you. And what that will do this next week. So I'll just give you the quick overview. Because that's what he means who do not know God. What the, the word there for know means a, a responsive intimacy to God. It's not just knowing facts about God, but who have not 
responded to his revelation, refusing to respond to his revelation. God has revealed himself in creation. And in that passage that we'll look at real quickly next week, he says, you, you know, he's revealed himself in what he's made. And you can learn about God from what he's made. And what have, what, generally speaking throughout the history of human race, what have people done with that? End point, they worship the created thing, not the creator. Second revelation is conscience. He says that in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, that God puts inside of us an innate sense of right and wrong. What do we do with that? We suppress it and harden our conscience. Third revelation is his moral law. The clarity of his values, his morals and ethical standards. What do we do with that? We suppress that and refuse. And then the final revelation, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 tells us that. The final revelation is Jesus. You want to know about God? You look at Jesus. And he is that final revelation of God. So what has humanity done with all four of those revelations? Now, this is generally speaking, because I've responded to it, you've responded to it. But so many have suppressed every one of those and refuse to acknowledge who God is. So as Paul says, when the great white throne judgment occurs, and human, no human being is going to be able to stand before God and say, I never knew anything about you. You've never explained yourself to me. And the conclusion Paul says is they will be without excuse. See, that's really important for you and me. So that's what he's saying here, Woody. It's those who have had a chance to respond, but did not respond. It isn't that they didn't hear. It's that they didn't respond. So we'll, we'll look at it a little more deeply next week. But I've got to quit because I've got to be, as you know, somewhere else on the other side of the city at a quarter after. The odds are very high, humanly speaking, I won't make it, particularly with all the road construction going around in our lovely city, which, as they always say, temporary inconvenience, permanent improvement. Father, we've um, looked at this um, wonderful little epistle of Second Thess and started it um, we thank you for its clarity. I thank you for the challenge for each one of us around the table to grow in our faith and grow in our love for one another. Lord, test us in this area. Strengthen us in this area. And some of us around the table even pray like the father did with his child who was dying and he comes to Jesus. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And it's okay to pray that. To have faith and trust in you is a, is a daily thing. It's a daily challenge. Lord, grow our faith, our trust, our dependence in you. And help us to have the perspective that Paul is trying to give to these Thessalonian believers. That the doctrine about the end times is to encourage and comfort us in the present. Because we know that you, at, at a time in the future, are going to make all things right, all things just, because you are the perfect judge. Thank you that you've judged us through Christ. If we've appropriated his finished work by faith, our sin problem has been taken care of. Thank you for that grand truth and help us to be motivated to live for you. Help us to represent you well in all that we do and all that we say. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. 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 See you next week.